Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, under the Trump administration, the tensions the, with, uh, and the relationships with uh, China have become rather strained. First, it was trade tensions, tariffs, uh, and mostly on the economic front. Now it's kind of spilling into the political realm as well. We can get the latest on all things U.S.-China. We can do that with Stephen Orleans, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations based in New York City. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here. You've had such a long history uh, in China dealing with the U.S. and China, the relationship there, doing business in China as well. I wonder if you could give us maybe your 30,000-foot view about the U.S.-China relationship right now from both sides. Well, I've been working on it, I guess, for 43 years since my time in the State Department and at Lehman, Lehman Brothers and the Carlyle Group, and now as president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And I think it's fair to say this is the worst that I've ever seen the relationship. Wow. Uh, and it's a confluence of three factors, and you have to look at the the factors are are related, but to some degree they're still separate. One, you have to remember the April 17th memo that leaked from the Republican National Committee, which is when when the administration is attacked on coronavirus issues, there to say we ban Chinese from coming and then blame China. So there has been this very strong. Uh, statements by the administration to blame China for everything. That's that's one. So electoral politics is a role. Second is what are called the Navarro Pompeo parts of the administration, um, where they really believe China is an existential threat and they want and it's going to change our way of life. And they're trying to put in place policies which are irreversible. And the third is Chinese actions where their actions in Hong Kong, their actions in Xinjiang, in the South China Sea, create an environment in the United States where there is not huge opposition to these uh, policies which get put in place. I mean, we're seeing pushback on, on TikTok, on WeChat now, but it's, it's, um, it's not as strong as it would be if China wasn't acting the way it shouldn't be. Stephen, when you say irreversible policies, what do you mean? What can't be reversed? Well, if you take, for instance, the for sale of, of TikTok, that's irreversible. So if Microsoft well, end, ends up buying TikTok, then either a President Trump that changes his mind or a President Biden can't go to Microsoft and say, oh, you spent $25 billion. Just kidding. You can, you can now reverse that sale. So those kinds of actions are irreversible. Setting kind of a, a putting in place, uh, you know, the, the, the Houston consulate closing is not irreversible. That actually, you know, a new president or President Trump changes his mind and says, okay, uh, let's reopen the consulate. And as a result, the American consulate in Chengdu will reopen. So there's reversible actions and there are irreversible actions. So, uh, Stephen, you know, I think maybe one of the most reasonable views I've heard is that, uh, okay, we, we as the United States need to take a tougher stance on China. A lot of people on both sides of the aisle agree upon that. China has not been fair in uh, some of its relations, uh, particularly economic and trade relations with the U.S., but the way that President Trump and his administration are going about it uh, is all wrong. What's your view? It needs to be multilateral. 
to go about this unilaterally will not work. So take as an example one which kind of matters to your listeners, the the blocking of listings of Chinese companies in the United States. When you do that unilaterally, you're playing whack-a-mole. We haven't agreed with Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo, London to have the same restrictions. So what happens is NASDAQ and NYSE lose that business. The Chinese don't lose anything that they basically will, will issue in Hong Kong, Singapore, London, or Tokyo. So if you don't have a multilateral approach, this getting tough is really uh, not an effective way of, of, of operating. And a lot of the things they want to get tough on are, 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 are fictional. You know, we have to have a real analysis. We have to have a nuanced view of what is going on in China. We don't. We saw today the Chinese are expanding their digital currency. Uh, Central bank digital currency is now, uh, it's in an experimental phase, but it's going to expand greatly. That is a Chinese government competitor to WeChat and Alipay that the Chinese government is putting in place competitors to these people who we are trying to block in the United States. It's just not, there's no nuance in these views. What's the right way to proceed if Joe Biden were to win? And obviously that's not at all, you know, something that we can predict. How would he proceed? I do, well, he will have a, I mean, the biggest difference will be a multilateral approach. That Chinese, that a lot of Chinese who have a very, who, who believe China should exceed to be the number one power in the world, like President Trump. They feel that his uh, unilateral approaches, you know, his tariffs on Canada, his, his diminution of NATO, a lot of things where he, he makes our allies less inclined to work with us is good for China. That basically lays a path for China to operate. President Biden will operate on is a multilateral approach. And that can be very problematic for uh, some of China's plans. So if we had something equivalent to a TPP, uh, it would force China to change its uh, trade policies, its investment policies, its protection of data policies. The TPP had lots of things in it which China would have had to agree to in the end, or it would have been excluded from this global trading system. So I think the big difference is multilateral versus unilateral. All right, Stephen, 30 seconds left. What is your view, or what do you think the view is in with, within China as it relates to kind of how they should proceed with the United States over the next 10 years? Well, they're worried about the next 83 days. Okay. You know, they, they think that they're, they're very focused on not overreacting to the provocations from the Trump administration. They believe that either a re-elected President Trump or an elected President Biden would have different policies towards China. I think in the long term, they're looking for China. You know, again, there is no Chinese government view. It's, it's a lack of nuance. There are people in the Chinese government with different views. Some want a very constructive, productive relationship with the United States. Some want to confront the United States. So we need to adopt policies which reward those who want to cooperate with the United States. And again, you need nuance in policy. You need people who understand uh, China in government to make those decisions. Stephen, we have to leave it there, but it is an excellent, you know, uh, chance to speak with you. Stephen Orleans is president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. 
So we know retail has had a tough time. It's been having a tough time, as they say. And now bankruptcies have started in earnest. Let's bring in somebody who is a bit more at the cold face of retail and has been for decades. Craig Johnson is president of Customer Growth Partners. Craig, where are we in the bankruptcy, you know, cycle? Are we halfway through yet? Are we, you know, done? Well, in, in terms of the uh, uh, bankruptcies that occurred so far, we think we're, uh, I'd say, about halfway done, maybe fifth or sixth inning. Um, this actually isn't a sign of uh, unhealth on the behalf of retailers. It's really a sign of weeding out of the poor performers and the poor players in what has been a vastly overcapacity industry that should have been right-sizing normally 5% every year, weeding out the weak stores, the weak competitors, and has put that off. So what we've had by dint of the whole COVID uh, closures is a forced right-sizing, and that's what we're seeing. It's interesting. It seems like when we've listened to a lot of the retailers, particularly the department stores, it seems like over the last several years we've been hearing announcements of 100 stores here, 200 stores there. Are you saying that that's still not enough, that this industry really needs a – we're still you know, overstored by maybe 30 to 40 percent in this country? Uh, I would maybe not 30 or 40 percent, but by a good 18, 20 percent. Okay. And yes, there have been cutbacks that the department stores, remember, you go back a generation ago, comprised 10 percent of the entire retail market. Now it's down to 0.9 percent. Wow. So you do the math. Craig, who's next? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure who's next. We don't like to speculate on, 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 on people going through Chapter 11. But I can say that, you know, the people who are that that are the share gainers of these companies are, you know, round up the, the, the top six usual suspects, you know, Walmart, Amazon, Costco, Target, Home Depot and Lowe's all had stellar uh, 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 are having stellar quarters, had stellar quarters, they haven't reported till, till beginning. Right, of but we, we can identify well. some of those that have been lagging. Right, Craig? I mean, some of those who just were not prepared for a downturn in the economy, who weren't getting consumer tastes right, who were maybe over discounting or not discounting enough. I mean, what were the mistakes? If we can't, if we can't mention the names, then at least let's mention some of the mistakes well, they made. A- absolutely. So you, know, you, you take, uh, let's take a couple of department stores where the JCPenney or Neiman Marcus or most recently like a day or two ago, um, uh, Steinmark. Um, and the commonality is, is that they did not shrink their store footprint in, uh, commensurately um, with the decline in aggregate demand. People just, uh, the, what department stores offer, even including Neiman's Mark, Neiman Marcus, is not as relevant to customers as it was even five years ago, much less 20 years ago. And um, so those are few. The other part of it is apparel. Apparel has shrunk dramatically over the years in terms of aggregate demand. Um, and yet there still seems to be plenty of retail square feet out there, even after the closures we've had uh, uh, in, in the apparel sector. And, you know, as the Asina brands, you know, parent of Ann Taylor and Justice and Loft and so forth, you know, they uh, went Chapter 11 a month and a half or so ago. And, you know, we wouldn't be at all surprised to see other folks go that way as well. So, Craig, I was in New York City uh, last week for the first time since the lockdown in March, and I was just shocked at driving in about you know all the empty storefronts, all the sales saying a you know, storefront for for rent and all, for lease and all that type of stuff. And I'm, I really fear for not so much the WalMarts and Costco's of the world on the on the retail front, but really the mom and pop uh, retailers. I, it looks like they're just getting uh, really really impacted here. 
Yeah, whether you're on Fifth Avenue or you're Lower Fifth and Lower Broadway in Soho, um, it's like a retail ghost town. It's uh, it's really sad in a sense. Um, but if customers don't want to go, as Yogi Barrett used to say, if people don't want to go to the ballpark, you're not going to stop them. Yep. And that, that's what we have here is that people just don't want to go into the city. They don't feel safe, comfortable, and when they see places boarded up. And, uh, you know, looting going on with I'm a, I'm a Chicagoan originally. It was it's very sad to see the entire Magnificent Mile uh, just trashed a few days ago. And right. Well, so hang on, because uh, I live very close to certain areas. And, and the, you know, there was some looting in the early days and then there was a little bit of looting in Chicago. But let's not overpaint it as, as mass looting. Fifth Avenue, for example, back when there were lots of reports that it was being looted, was only in part damaged and a lot of the inventory had already been taken out thanks to coronavirus so I'm just putting that out there uh, so, uh, true, true it may be but just consumers if consumers had great confidence in what's going on uh, then we would see more traffic and without traffic a lot of these stores are not going to make it I mean yes the Saks will make it and LV uh, is going to make it and God knows Costco and Walmart they're fine but stores that don't have that kind of financial strength or customer strength are going to be challenged so, Craig, is this pandemic, I mean, it, it, I guess the question for a lot of retailers is how permanent has the accelerated shift to online shopping, how permanent will that be? Or when we do get back to, quote unquote, a normal day-to-day uh, life, will people go back to stores? What's your view? Well, um, last year, online uh, comprised about 18% of total retail sales. Uh, this year, at the peak of the pandemic period um, in, in April, it jumped up to about 25%, and has since ratcheted back a little bit as the stores have reopened in May and June, etc. Et um, so that penetration is 25% down to about 23%. But what that means is we have it, uh, usually online grows about at one point a year ballpark, and what we've done essentially is 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 packed five years of growth. Mm-hmm into five months, in other words, the 18 to the 23%. And so we think things are going to stabilize at about 22, 23, and then proceed to the normal, you know, about one, adding about a point or two, a, pen, a point, say, a penetration a year. Uh, and that is, that we think that is a permanent change uh, with this, obviously, with this ratchet, big ratchet, five-point ratchet up this, uh, this year. Very interesting. Really appreciate that. Craig Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. Craig Johnson, President of Customer Growth Partners. Well, we are so fortunate to have the good folks of Johns Hopkins University lend us their time uh, to here at Bloomberg Radio to help us stay educated and stay on the you know top of the news on what's going on with this virus and remedies and potential vaccines. Lauren Sauer has been a great friend to Bloomberg Radio and keeping us up to date on all the latest developments. Lauren is the Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. I should note that Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg philanthropies and this radio and tv station so lauren let's start a little bit with vaccines because uh, i'm i'm really cons- or i'm just kind of wondering what is going on in russia they say they have a covid vaccine they say it's safe but there really hasn't been any real phase three testing has there no there hasn't and that is one of the biggest concerns that we have right now um, when we look at what's happening in russia with their vaccine plan um, it's being rolled out uh without phase three, um, which can lead to a lot of downstream challenges that normally you would see during that phase three process. So um, different effects that the vaccine can have on a population, different 
challenges with rolling out just the operational process of rolling out vaccine and even more safety data is gathered during that phase three as well. And so by skipping that, they not only have the potential to to harm the population that is receiving the vaccine, but there are significant downstream effects that can happen as well outside of that specific vaccinated population. Yeah. Can you explain a bit further, Lauren, as to what that might look like? Sure. So um, the the vaccine can create um, antibody dependent effects um, that can impact how the virus spreads in the community for those who have been vaccinated and those who haven't been vaccinated. In addition, there are challenges like uh, if we find that there are safety effects in this broader population, this more diverse population. When we do phase one and phase two studies, we're looking for a relatively healthy population with certain levels of potential exposure. And that phase three moves us into uh, a population that's more representative of uh, the general community. And so we may identify safety challenges that um, we didn't see in those early phases that could 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 create dramatic health effects for people who are receiving the vaccine more broadly that we didn't see early. So, uh, Lauren, just we'll just finish up on this Russia aspect. Um, will you and other folks in the West in the healthcare field, will you have the opportunity to kind of see what's going on in Russia? Do you think they're going to be disclosing credible information so that we can even get a read on how this is proceeding? I think that's the hope. You know, we um, we recognize that we may not have the full picture, but I think um, some of the safety information, some of this potential ADE issue will be seen, um, whether or not it's seen through the, you know, formally transmitted data or more informally through um, observation, external observation. Um, we, we are hoping, I think, that they that they actually consider coming back to the idea of conducting a phase three trial before they push it more broadly. Um, and and I think only time will tell on that. Lauren, where are we in the sort of evolution of the coronavirus across the United States? You know, have we hit peak yet? Will there be further peaks? When does it come back to the East Coast in, 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 in bigger numbers? We have a lot to learn about how the virus is um, going to have potential seasonality or how it will um, come and go um, from the various populations. And, and some of that also will inform us a bit more about the uh, likelihood of reinfection and how immunity lasts. Um, so I think in a lot of places across the country, we are starting to see a leveling off, and we hope that that maintains, and we hope that um, that buys us time to create some of these pharmaceutical interventions and improve some of the pharmaceutical interventions like vaccines and some of our therapeutics. You know, therapeutics don't stop outbreaks. They improve outcomes. And so our the vaccine is one of our highest priorities, but we are going to see peaks moving um, you know, and and communities that seem to have had the viruses under con- the virus under control have follow-on peaks again as people get less, get more lenient with their behaviors or their um, you know their adherence to the these new behaviors, and just the general mixing in the population with the fall um, and the challenges associated with back to school, which we're already seeing um, with the potential for uh, flu season and um, with the holidays. So, Lauren, when vaccines do become available, hopefully sometime next year, is the expectation within the healthcare community that, uh, I guess, vulnerable populations will be targeted first for distribution and then maybe more broadly after that? Yeah, there's several groups working on some different prioritization strategies. Um, 
And this is something that we have done for a long time with a lot of different vaccines. So there are several uh, groups that are, are very um, skilled in, in this and, and can use the population data to prioritize who should get the vaccine first. Um, we do think a lot about our vulnerable communities. We also think a lot about essential personnel, particularly healthcare workers who have that higher level of exposure. Um, and then some of the vaccines, the early vaccine data and the phase three data will help us, will help inform these groups on how they target um, their priority rollouts. Lauren, what what is the top thing that people should watch now that it's sort of back to school era and um you know maybe there's a little bit of fatigue setting in yeah i think it's um it's a slightly worrying combination so um you know we we as a country sort of made the choice to reopen broad, broad communities and um you know things like bars and restaurants and that i think is impacting our ability now to safely reopen schools you know up to July, the, or up to early July, we had about 200,000 cases of COVID-19 in kids. And from July to now, we have almost the exact same amount. So that's worrisome and I think is ind- indicative of some changes that need to happen with how we safely reopen schools. When you think about that, coupled with possible flu season, um, even if it is a lighter flu season because of yes. social distancing, we're very worried um, and we have to pay really close attention to it. Lauren Sauer, Johns Hopkins University, always an absolute pleasure and thank you for your time. So let's bring in the editor of the Bloomberg Brief on Municipal Markets, Joe Mysack. He comes to us in our interactive brokers studio in New York. Joe, obviously the chat about further stimulus is a tiny bit put on pause because actually we're not getting any signals at all out of Washington that there will be further stimulus. But there'll have to be. Is the muni market getting ready? Oh, Wow, Vani, this is the this is the topic on everyone's minds, and uh, some people think that yeah, this is going to get done. Others don't. There was one line uh, in the uh, uh, the story we carried today by uh, Bloomberg's Billy House, and uh, it was a quote from Mitch McConnell, and it was this, it was it was bizarre. I think he said. Quote, Democrats think they smell an opening they have wanted for years to make Uncle Sam bail out decades of mismanagement and broken policies in places like New York, New Jersey, and California. Now, just, you know, stop right there. New York, New Jersey, California, these three states make up 25% of the nation's GDP. California is, is what, I think, the fifth largest economy in the world, if taken on its own. Uh, I, I don't see where McConnell gets that. New Jersey, yes, has had some pension problems. I'm surprised he didn't bring up Illinois in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly didn't bring up Kentucky, which has a notable pension shortfall problem. Anyway, so yeah, this is, uh, this is really the issue on everyone's mind right now. All right, Joe, you mentioned uh, the great state of New Jersey. I'm sitting smack dab in that state right now. And I saw some news recently that the top court approved uh, the state's plan to borrow up to, I guess, close to $10 billion to cover its deficit. What does the muni bond market think about that? Well, you know, I'll tell you, uh, we have almost microscopic yields uh, right now. And uh, to the extent that uh, New Jersey uh, sells all the bonds, part of them, um, and there's any kind of yield at all attached to them, uh, 
you know, market will eat them right up because New Jersey, again, it's, I think, uh, number eight, eight or nine in the uh, rankings of, of states listed by GDP. So, you know, New Jersey is, is, a, is, a, is a little financial engine, too, if you will. You know, yeah, they've had problems with the pension and problems with the budget. Murphy, Governor Murphy, seems like, you, you know, kind of a steady hand at the wheel. Um, so, yeah, I think the market would eat these up because right now the market is, uh, you know, we haven't seen a tremendous amount of supply. So, uh, yeah, these are the, the market guys up. Joe, I mean, remember when Murray Whitney made that <laughs> prediction way back after the financial crisis? And, you know, it, it sort of could have gone either way. I mean, a lot of people believed what she had to say and thought that uh, Armageddon was coming for municipalities. Is there any chance that, that something like that is on the horizon now? You know, yeah, that's the the, the, the doomsday scenario. It always comes around. And I talked to, uh, you know, this week I talked to uh, Paul Malloy at uh, Vanguard Group, and he manages uh, $224 billion of bonds, which is the size in in my market. And uh, he doesn't see it. And the reason is because... Uh, states and localities are providing funding for essential services. So they're an absolute must for the economic recovery. And he says that he sees that Congress will do something. Congress will stop being intransigent. And, uh, you know, so eventually there will be some some rescue money there, some relief, because the alternative is, uh, you know, too horrible to think about. Uh, you know, I, but, but really, what would that mean? It would mean some defaults, uh, you know, maybe, you know, you see a couple of uh, Chapter 9 bankruptcies at the local level, uh, you know, but, but a whole, the, the doomsday scenario is so oversold and not accurate when it comes to meetings. Joe, I know before the pandemic hit, the taxable municipal bond market was red hot. We had lots of international buyers coming into that market, just desperate for yield. How's that market trading right now? How's the the funds flows, the new issuance? How's that market looking to you? Oh, baby, taxable bonds are, are you know, it's like the, mm. uh, it's the flavor du jour in the mini market right now, because municipalities, you know, find that rates are so low, they can sell taxable bonds, which, as you say, are attractive to uh, out-of-country buyers as, as well as in-country buyers. Um, they could sell those taxable and refund, advance refund bonds that they sold in the tax-exempt market a few years ago, three, four, five years ago. And, of course, the, uh, the most recent Tax Act uh, prohibited the use of tax-exempt financing for advance refundings. So, yeah, taxables are going crazy. And, you know, it's a portion of the market. Maybe it's $650 billion out of the uh, $3.9 trillion beauty market. But I read a report this week that uh, where an analyst said you can easily see it go up to, uh, you know, a $900 billion portion of the market mm-hmm. in the next couple of years here. So, yeah, it's just worn along. We'll keep an eye on that. Joe Mysek, thank you once again. Joe Mysek, edit. Editor Bloomberg Brief, keeping us up to date on all things going on in the municipal bond market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.